this is Healing Justice Podcast. Conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and you're joining us for a live show at the Funders Network Annual Conference in Miami, Florida. Hey, everybody, how you doing? (laughs) All right. We are focusing tonight on the topic of food, justice, and healing. And none of these things take place apart from place, which I know is something very important to people in this room. So you're about to meet some amazing guests from all over the country, actually. Oklahoma, New York, Wisconsin, from Ecuador, in Seattle, and right here in the neighborhood in Little Haiti, here in Miami, Florida. And so we're gonna start out with a grounding here in this neighborhood of Little Haiti as we come to you live from the Little Haiti Cultural Complex. And so we're gonna welcome back Inez Barlatier, who is a multifaceted musical artist of Haitian descent, a Miami native, and a Little Haiti neighborhood resident. I think also thought about maybe walking here, living so close. Um, So Inez recently showcased her main stage solo debut as part of Fund Artes El Barrio series and was awarded a Knight Foundation 2017 Knight Arts Champion. So you can find more about Inez and her new EP, Moon Moon, at InezBarlatier.com. And she's going to perform for us her song, Where Is My Home? Thank you.
Thank you for welcoming us. Um, thanks, Inez. So I want to say just a couple words before we dig into our conversation about food sovereignty, about what is meant by the term healing justice, because this is not a term by any means that I came up with, and it is not new work. I mean, certainly, um, actually one of the ways one of my mentors describes it is that it is a Western European ideology that would even begin to separate the concept of healing and social justice work from each other. That liberation is both external and internal, and that this is actually a, a construct to even imagine that that's a binary, right? And the term healing justice more modernly in the US was especially coined by Kara Page, who um, is an incredible researcher, activist, teacher, organizer, who coined the term in the South, um, was working with a crew called the, Ki the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective over the past 20 years, and talked about this concept of both centering healing in our organizing work, and also very explicitly dismantling the medical industrial complex and the role of racism, um, gender bias, and eugenics in the construction of the medical industrial complex here in this country, right? That all of these systems are very inextricable. And so when we talk about any of these issues that we're working on for social change, every single issue comes back to being rooted in our bodies. Whether we're talking about climate change and survival, food justice, incarceration, migration, every single one of these issues comes back to a physical experience. And so to not acknowledge and bring our bodies into the conversation and the way we do this work is disconnected from the idea of the very liberation that we're seeking. And so I wanna invite y'all, we shared a little zine with you that's on your chair. And if you're listening on the podcast, you can find the link to the zine um, in the show notes and you can download it and actually print it and fold it at home. And these are words in the zine from a healing justice practice space guide that was written by Autumn Brown and Maurice Mitchell Brody. Um, who've been doing this work for a long time. And so I just wanna read part of the definition that they share, which is on the middle page, that the term healing justice used within our movement refers to an evolving political framework shaped by economic, racial, and disability justice that recenters the role of healing inside of liberation. And so there's a, a few more words in this zine talking about the role of collective and historical trauma and what it means to support one another um, in, in bringing all of ourselves, including the collective and historical trauma that we carry and we continue to experience um, in a country and in a moment in history where injustice is the norm, right? Um, and trying to bring our full selves into the work we do. So just a quick word about this project and then we're gonna hang out with Estefania and Miles. This podcast actually started a, a little bit by mistake. I'm not actually that into podcasts, and now I've been running one for a year and a half. Um, but I'm a grassroots organizer. I come out of the immigrant rights movement, and then later on training organizers across climate, student organizing, um, the movement for black lives, um, people working on water issues. Um, and the pattern that I started seeing, I'm only 10 years into being an organizer. But the pattern I started seeing is that my peers and even people younger than me are burning out. And it feels impossible to me that at this young of an age, much less at any age, like how are we building movements and organizations that have such mammoth, beautiful, liberatory vision, but then we're creating conditions under which after five or 10 years, people can't be there anymore. <laughs> 
<laughs> like that is not the way, right? And then if we're building people-powered movements and we really, our theory of change is that with like people is our main resource, right? Our main, our main, the main way that we're gonna win, then how can we burn through people in the way that we're working? That's, the, that's a waste of our central resource, right? And so was trying to figure out how, we can, how can we bring folks together with ideas and practices and innovation that's new and also ideas that are ancient and culturally rooted and traditional about how to sustain ourselves, body, mind, and spirit as we do this work. How can we bring those resources more into the mainstream of how we're talking about justice and organizing? And uh, podcasting just happened to turn out to be one way to do that. And so we've been running this project publicly for about a year and a half and sharing stories and also sharing practices um, from, we have over 81 episodes now. We have over half a million downloads all around the world, most of which are in the US because we're speaking from a US context. Um, but it's really taken off because I think people are very hungry for this conversation, right? It's more about the moment than about the fact of this podcast being really great. <laughs> it's a moment where people are really hungry for this conversation. And so um, I encourage you if you're in the room and you haven't checked it out before to subscribe, even if you haven't listened to a podcast before, you could try it out because the resource library that we're creating is unbelievable. The amount of wisdom of organizers from all over the country, cultural workers, healers, thought leaders, like all kind of folks, sharing not only their perspective, but also teaching in these practice episodes. Here is a skill that you can use. Here's a meditation you can listen to that's specifically designed for activists. Here's an emotional regulation technique that you can use when you're, when you're in a meeting or you're in a protest and like you start melting down, right? Or here's um, some of my favorites are conflict practices of like, have you ever been in a room where your team cannot agree and you know something's bad and you know we're not getting along, but you can't quite figure out what the conflict is about anymore. <laughs> um, there's practices where you can actually map, like what are the power dynamics that are coming up? How can I start to figure out what's going on in this room right now, right? There's really practical leadership tools there. So I just wanna highlight that since not all of y'all have seen the podcast before. And with that, let's just get right to modeling it and welcome up my friends Estefania and Miles. Give them a big round of applause. They traveled to be here. Yes. So I'm gonna read you their bios, which don't even begin to do them justice, but they'll tell you more. Um, so Estefania here, Estefania Narvaez, is a proud Ecuadorian working for social justice globally, fueled by the impacts of imperialism in their home country historically and today. For the last seven years, they've been working with Real Food Challenge, a campaign and student activist network working to divest from the industrial food model and invest in a just food system. They are now the organizing director with Uprooted and Rising, a movement dedicated to scaling up the fight for food sovereignty and exposing big food corporations that poison our land, water, and bodies. And Estefania joined us uh, via Ecuador, via Seattle, via a whole Midwest tour and almost got stuck in the snow. So can we give a welcome to Estefania for making it? And then we're also welcoming Miles Francisco, who uh, is a third-year student at the University of Oklahoma, studying political science, African, African and African-American studies, with minors in international studies and women and gender studies. Miles is a community organizer, also with Uprooted and Rising. 
and the NAACP and campus groups like the Black Emergency Response Team and Gender Inequality Center. Born and raised in a food desert, Miles knows firsthand what white supremacy in the food system looks like. He has seen the power of food sovereignty through urban and community gardening and how food can bring communities together across difference. And we're welcoming Miles from Oklahoma via a trip to Miami for spring break that's happening right now. <laughs> so. <laughs> Miles' friends are at the beach, and Miles is choosing to be here with us. So that's pretty good. Um, so just to welcome you all, we would love to hear a little bit about your stories. What brings you to this work of food sovereignty? And also, has any kind of healing had anything to do with how you got here? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Live podcast, huh? Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I was born and raised in Quito, Ecuador, um, which is in South America, next to Colombia, next to Peru. Um, so Quito is like a, a city of four million people. Um, I grew up mostly in apartments, so not necessarily like uh, a backyard or things like that always. Um, I did have access to that at some point. You know, one of the best memories that I have of food, I, I didn't really think about food as like a political thing then. Um, I do think about my grandmother's food, um, which I think I took for granted back when I was growing up there, and now I wish I had it every day, forever. Um, yeah, so my, my political awakening came when I was a teenager. I was uh, being agitated from different perspectives, um, one very real one is that when I was growing up, we were going through a lot of political turmoil. I think uh, during my lifetime, <laughs> we have probably, I think we've had about eight uh, different presidents. Um, I'm 30 years old, to give you a reference. And that uh, had direct you know, impacts in what I experienced in my family. I have this vivid memory of one time when, uh, in 2000, when uh, major banks in the country closed down, um, a lot of these bankers are not in prison. <laughs> but uh, I remember my mom getting a call from her lawyer saying like, hey, one of the banks that just like ran and took all our money out of the country was your bank. Um, and my mom was in a lot of like financial uh, trouble at the moment um, and she lost her ability to speak for three days. And my sisters and I, you know, I have this picture in my head where we're like sitting or standing around her bed, feeding her sugar to keep her blood pressure up and um, not know what to do. We were young people. Um, I was also really agitated through my teachers. I was lucky enough to have um, teachers in my school that were telling us uh, to not read US printed textbooks because the history would be skewed, it wouldn't be the truth. And so they gave us this alternative, really awesome, radical, uh, books that give us a totally different perspective to me and my friends and uh, my classmates of what the history of our country really is, the history of imperialism um, in Ecuador, um, especially the dynamic between Ecuador and the United States. And so I you know, had a lot of like anger as a young person and a lot of like desire to really see a different thing, a different future. Um, and I could see the limitations of like the vision that was so entrenched, you know, to this empire and, and that vision. And so um, the 
the pinnacle moment, this is a, around the time when I was leaving the country, um, was that the socialist movement was really on the rise. Um, and it felt really powerful um, at the time uh, because it was really supported by a lot of indigenous movements in Ecuador. Um, the socialist government um, that is now um, in place at the time was pushing this new constitution. We re rewrote our constitution in 2006. Um, and this constitution included a ban of genetically modified seeds to be introduced into agriculture in Ecuador um, because of the precedent of big seed companies uh, suing and criminalizing farmers for saving seeds, which is a practice that people have been doing for millennia. Um, and uh, our constitution also gave rights to nature, which was very focused on um, uh, really preventing pharmaceutical companies from coming and patenting uh, indigenous knowledge, essentially, and then selling it back to us, right? And so that was really powerful. I was really energized. Um, and I think what really culminated the rise of that time was that we, as a people, were able to reject a free trade agreement that was being negotiated by the outgoing government. Um, and I saw a lot of young people go into the streets. I saw a lot of people from the agroecological movement um, really be at the forefront of that fight, and I was very inspired. Um, and um, so when I came to the US, one of the first uh, things that I started to organize around was um, campaigns that opened up markets for small, cooperatively run producers, um, food producers in the global south. Um, since then, it's been about 12 years, and I'm here. Um, and I've organized, you know, across a couple of issues, but food has really remained at the center for me. Um, there's so many intersections that I feel so held by in that intersection of the food sovereignty um, lens. Um, and I was the kind of person that just was like, go, go, go. I, you know, the issues, like I have to give my life for the movement. This is, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life with the same level of energy, right? I thought that and I've learned a lot <laughs> from that. Um, but really, it wasn't until about two and a half years ago. Um, and as we were in the process of building Uprooted and Rising, which is, um, you know, a, a movement that really gave me, the possibility of this movement at the point where we were forming it, um, really gave me a lot of strength. It was like the possibility of actually shifting mass consciousness to make material wins for food sovereignty a reality. You know, thinking about that from the context that I'm coming from, from the context of Ecuador, it was unbelievable. Um, but I also, I think, in this process, it gave me the courage to open up like a whole healing and spiritual journey um, that I hadn't really tapped into before. Um, and yeah, about two and a half years ago, or two and a couple months ago now, um, I came out as a survivor of bullying and sexual and physical violence. And that gave me a lot of like pausing. Um, the fact that I had to just like actually stop and grapple with that for a second <laughs> made me really reflect on the way that I was doing my work, the way that I was thinking or not thinking about my body. Um, and uh, some people ended up bullying me for, for the act of coming out. Um, and some people ended up being, you know, some of the strongest spiritual companions that I have now. Um, and it caused me a lot of, it triggered a lot of reflections in me. Um, a lot of reflections about violence, my relationship to it, 
Um, you know, when I see, I started to see the color of my skin as like evidence of, of the violence of colonialism um, towards indigenous women and uh, European colonizers. I started to see a lot, um, the things that I didn't know. I don't know much about my lineage. I don't know much about my heritage. I don't know almost anything about any ancestral tradition or anything that any of the peoples that I don't know who they are <laughs> had once. Um, I, uh, and I, I really yearned for that. I, I seeked a lot of mentorship. I, uh, I saw a lot of wisdom um, from people that were able to teach me about herbs, about plants, about medicinal, um, medicinal uh, or natural medicine. Um, you know, I'm so blessed to have been introduced to a lot of things that have really helped me on my day to day. I've introduced like different rituals into my life. Um, that I really supported it, uh, supported that growth for me. And most recently, I have been, I was invited to um, take part in uh, ritual and prayer with the Pure Pecha community in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that has really pushed me to um, have uh, a different uh, experience of uh, being reconnected with the land, being able to. Um, I've, I've been sharing food and community for a long time, but this has felt a little different after having done a lot of ritual and a lot of um, recognizing my own ancestry. Um, and it's really pushed me to reach for my ancestors, um, those that I don't know anything about, um, those that I never got to meet. Um, and uh, I think this has really brought me back to the work to uprooted and rising with a different lens. Um, and I think what I feel in my heart is that I deeply, deeply want this to be a movement where, um, where people are able to um, reconnect um, with these things. Um, but especially for young black indigenous POC organizers and leaders that are gonna be part of our movement, that are part of our movement um, to, uh, be able to heal some ancestral wounds um, and um, imagine uh, what it can really be like to feel free. Can we show some love to Stefania? And welcoming Miles. Miles, what brings you in a personal journey to be working on food justice and food sovereignty? Cool, cool. Thank you. How y'all doing? Good, 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 good. Um, so uh, what brings me to this work is um, sort of vis-a-vis um, -vis racial justice work um, and Uprooted and Rising um, is very much so like the intersections of food justice and racial justice. Um, those things, you know, it's not, they're not um, dichotomized to one another. They very much so go hand in hand. Um, but as Kate said, um, or read in my bio, um, I'm from Oklahoma City. Um, so uh, the east side of Oklahoma City in particular, which is um, a predominantly black um, neighborhood, pr predominantly black, historically black um, side of town. has a very rich history of black excellence, of black resilience and black survival, um, but it is a food desert. Um, and what you see in this neighborhood um, is the access to food or lack thereof is um, you know, pretty appalling, right? So you have um, 
all types of, you know, every fast food restaurant that you could imagine, right, is in our neighborhood, right? Like, you got a liquor store basically on every other block, um, and, you know, a McDonald's, a Sonic, and Taco Bell, KFC, what have you, right? Right there for you, right around the corner within walking distance, right? But what you don't have is any sense of nourishing or sustainable food access to these things, right? Within walking distance or driving distance, right? Um, and what you have um, in Oklahoma City is you travel about a mile from where my best friend lives um, into Nichols Hills, which is a predominantly white neighborhood, a historically affluent um, neighborhood. Um, and what you have there are, you know, multiple um, grocery stores, you know, Whole Foods, the Sprouts, things of that nature, right? Like where you have this access to like nourishing, real, healthy, fresh um, food, right? Um, and as we're thinking about these things, right, you, you have to understand that this is by no means an accident, right? What you see across the country and across the world, really, right, is that access to these things, right? Food deserts are very much so in places where you have predominantly people of color, low income, right? Um, and how this is very much so a tool of white supremacy to, no exaggeration, slowly kill us, right? Because as, you know, your entire diet is consisting of... Um, you know, unhealthy foods, right? Food, you know, foods that, you know, don't do very much to, um, um, you know, nourish you, right? Like your, your life expectancy um, decreases significantly, right? So that experience growing up in that neighborhood, um, having, you know, parents who had the economic uh, mobility, you know, to where we could get access to other foods, but having family members and friends who did not have that access and seeing how that impacted their health and their parents' health and their grandparents' health, right, um, it was very much so um, part of the reason, right, um, that this is so personal for me. Um, so, so much of the work that I do is about a reconnection um, with my roots and my ancestors. Um, and I think that's the case for many black people. Um, and you can't talk about, you know, the history of African-Americans, of black folk in this country without talking about slavery, right? Um, and not to belabor the point too much, but slavery was very much a story of um, resilience. Um, and it was very much so a story of um, what I call like a revolution of imagining, right? Um, so like, having the wherewithal, having the um, power within you to imagine a brighter tomorrow, right? To imagine freedom, to imagine liberation, to imagine me, right? Um, to imagine like someone sitting here in Miami, you know what I'm saying? So it, it is very much so um, a revolutionary act to imagine a bigger, better, brighter tomorrow. Um, and that's very much so what, you know, enslaved peoples in this country, as they were building this country, did. Um, Another part that grounds me um, in this work is uh, my family members, um, and, um, especially my sister, um, Alex Francisco, um, who is a black woman um, and um, is someone who has gone through um, quite a bit in her life um, and is very much so um, a testament to the strength that um, you know, black, so many black women, right, have um, in facing um, multiple forms of oppression, right, um, facing a society that um, looks to um, belittle them, that looks to silence them at every turn, right, um, and despite all of the trauma that she's been through, right, despite um, all of the 
potentially insurmountable hurdles for other people, um, she continued to persevere, right, and to thrive. Um, and what my sister saw, right, in our food desert in the east side of Oklahoma City, um, she reacted to these things, right, and like f knew what the solution was, right? It was community-driven, um, community-founded um, food systems, right? We knew that the big food system, um, as we talk about pretty often, um, isn't doing anything, right, for us, right? Isn't Their interest is not um, with black people, right? It's not with people of color. It's not with poor people, right? Um, so what she did was she created um, community gardens within our neighborhood um, in the east side of Oklahoma City um, to be run and controlled by um, our neighborhood. Um, and this is very much so, again, a revolutionary act of imagining, right? Imagining um, a place where, you know, black people are th themselves, right? Controlling what food um, is being grown, planted, right? And also dealing with their own trauma, right? And healing themselves through the soil and through, you know what I'm saying? Growing these things and like seeing themselves um, within the herbs and such that they're growing um, and changing the reality of the lack of access, right, that we have in our neighborhood um, to food. So that's a very, you know, small example of what um, Uprooted and Rising and so many organizations are working towards, which is food sovereignty. Um, so, you know, food justice work um, is very much so a connection um, to our roots, right? So food is... Um, everybody eats, right? Like we all have stories about, um, you know, whether good or bad, right? Whether traumatic or not, um, about our past, about how we grew up with food. Um, so food is the connector that binds us to our community, to our roots. Um, so, so much of this, um, so much of what we call soul food, right? So um, black food ways, the intersection of food and culture, um, soul food, um, what you see um, as you study it is that it very much so, so much of it, like yams, greens, right, all these different type of things actually are um, native to Western Africa. So what you see is that, you know, um, during the transatlantic slave trade, um, Africans turned Americans very much so um, brought this history with them, right, brought part of them with them um, through food. Um, so understanding that and being connected to that, right, and, and seeing that strength within our food and our food ways um, is something that is incredibly powerful for me. And I think, you know, the main thing is right now the work that my sister does and that other people do and so far as community gardens, food co-ops, how they're kind of like anomalies, um, they're the exception. Um, what Uprooted and Rising does, fighting for food sovereignty, we, we very much so want to make this normal, right? We want to see this across um, communities of color in the country, right? That's what food sovereignty is all about. Um, and that's, you know, my job in this work is to uplift um, her, right, is to uplift the women of color, is to uplift the queer people of color, right, um, who are doing this work, right, day by day um, with very little recognition, right, um, to ensure that I'm using my voice, right, um, in this microphone um, to shed a spotlight, right, on the work that she's doing and so many people like her are doing. More than anything, you know, I think it is just about reimagining um, a brighter tomorrow. So again, this revolutionary act of imagination. Um, 
And, you know, food sovereignty is this, you know, great big thing, but it is just about seeing the possibility, right, of um, how the big food system oppresses us in so many ways and understanding that, you know, you can do something bigger and brighter tomorrow. Thank you. Give it up for Miles. <laughs> Also welcoming into the room, Alex Francisco, Miles' sister. Um, so the name of, of your organization or the movement that you're building is Uprooted and Rising. And I know that's on purpose. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why it's called Uprooted. Yeah. Um, this was a very intentional choice. You know, some people might say, why are you trying to invoke like such a traumatic word? <laughs> Uprooted. And um, I think, you know, it's two parts. Uprooted for us is really important because we actually do want to invoke the um, inherent violence and displacement that big food corporations all over the world um, mean. The growth of these food corporations means displacement and violence. Those are synonymous. Um, and, um, and uprootedness um, very much describes that, that process of um, pushing people out from uh, where they belong. And so it's like a kind of very physical thing. And if we th think historically, you know, I think Miles' story can speak a little bit to that, um, the uprootedness in terms of people being literally uprooted um, from um, Africa um, into this continent, from Mexico because of free trade agreements into this country and, it, and um, effects like that. And rising is because we want to also invoke the badassness and resilience of all the people that are still here. We are still here. Um, you are your ancestors' wildest dreams, um, Miles. <laughs> um, and so that's like the two piece there. It's a really powerful name. I, I love it. And, um, and I also love like the way that y'all are really including the whole history. Like when we started talking about what kind of conversation we wanted to have here, like how much you raise up in the central way you do your work, this idea that displacement and, the, and particularly the way that displacement and violence has been enacted on the global south is an inextricable truth that we have to reckon with if we're gonna deal with food systems, right? Um, and so I know also when we started talking about this episode, we were talking about the term food justice and then y'all helped realign us into the term food sovereignty. And uh, can you just tell us more about what that difference is? What does food sovereignty mean? Yeah, I think the biggest difference um, or key point for food sovereignty is just who is in control, right? So who, um, you know, both things, this work, food justice work, um, very much so sees food as a human right, right? That everyone should have access to food that nourishes the body, right? Um, and that just isn't the case right now. Um, but food sovereignty is all about um, who controls it, right? Um, and who, you know, the access to um, our ancestral um, foodways, right? Um, and the ability to know and understand those things and grow our own food, right, um, within our communities, right, um, for ourselves, right, so for us and by us. Um, and this is, you know, a concept, an idea um, that has been used, you know, globally by peasants in the U.S. specifically, um, indigenous people, right? So it is very much so about reclaiming our land, right? Reclaiming water, reclaiming resources, right? These very fundamental things to our lives, um, to our well-being, right? To our minds, to our, to our spirits, um, and ensuring, right, that we have the ability um, 
to ensure that food is a human right, right? But that we have the control, that the people, that the power is within the people, right? And that they have their own sovereignty. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear just in closing together, it's the way that you're, I mean, when you're talking about really bringing the entire history in the room, when we're talking about healing justice, how collective and historical trauma is very much part of what we're carrying when we engage with this work. Um, and so how do you sustain yourselves and each other in the work that you're doing um, when you're dealing with such heavy content, a lot of which you won't see the resolve of in our lifetimes, right? How do you hold that? Yeah. Um, we have uh, lots of practices in our movement um, and new ones are always welcome. Um, but uh, this is actually a great way to close this section because um, we're about to go eat food. Um, and so we, two things that we do a lot is we do um, food traditions. And so before a meal, um, before sharing food with each other, we um, typically honor the people that um, have been part of that process, honor the land, honor all the different resources and different hands that have touched that process um, to not invisibilize those people and those things. And so we, we often do that. Um, and we might add in, you know, a little thing. I know I've gotten people to like chew a raisin for a really long time. <laughs> just so that we can feel it. <laughs> um, but we also sing songs. Um, and I think that's something that has felt really powerful when you hear the harmony in a room, the echo in a room, and you feel like you're in sync. It can really feel like we can win. And so um, to close this piece, um, this conversation, I was going to teach y'all a song that I wrote myself. Um, and I'll tell you the, the two lines first, and then we'll rehearse it, and then we'll sing it. Um, so the lines are, in the world we seek, we're proud and free. In our dignity, we're proud and free. And the reason why I wrote this very short song, <laughs> it was very practical for moments like these, also for protests or things like that. Um, but, you know, I never, I didn't really feel the word dignity in my body the way that I did when I started that healing process I was talking about earlier. Um, so I really wanted something that can point towards the future and include those two things, dignity and being proud of who you are. Um, and so, all right, y'all ready to learn it? Okay, cool. So let's um, stand if you can, if you want to. Um, all right, so um, the first line, uh, in the world we seek, we're proud and free, um, is three times, and then the last one, in our dignity, we're proud and free, is just once. So it goes like this. In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're all proud and free. In the world we seek, we're all proud and free. In our dignity, we're proud and free. In our dignity, we're proud and free. Okay, let's do it all together now, okay? In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're proud and free. In the world we seek, we're all proud and free. In our dignity, we're proud and free. One more time! In the world we seek, we're proud.
were proud and free. Woo! Thank you. All right. How about that voice, though, Ana Stefania? So we got just a couple quick announcements. You're welcome to take a seat. Um, but as we transition out, just an enormous, enormous thank yous to so many folks. Um, thank you to Estefania Narvaez and to Miles Francisco for being with us as guests, sharing their wisdom with us. Mm. Want to do a huge thank you to the Funders Network staff for coordinating this work, to Pat, Les Marie, Tere, so many people who have been amazing. Um, a thank you, of course, to the Little Haiti Cultural Center and Deidre here, as well as the sound crew, Tom and Dennis. Give it up. Hey. Um, and a huge, huge thank you to Michelle Knappick, who was, has worked with uh, the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation to sponsor this to be possible and to really be an ambassador for the importance of centering healing and justice work in TFN. Yeah. yeah. And let's go eat together. This Before has been. Before we go, let's give her on a plastic case. <laughs> thank you. This has been Healing Justice Podcast. Let's go eat. <laughs>Gosh, how amazing is Inez Barlatier? Uh, big thank you to Phil Agnew for connecting us uh, so that we could work with such an incredible musician in Miami. And here I am two days later, uh, having flown home to Brooklyn and with Estefania on the phone back home in Seattle. What's up, Estefania? Hey, hey. doing good. Hey, hey, we're both having... to sleep in a little bit. I know, I was going to say, we're both having kind of a tired day after traveling and holding the show. Um, but wanted to do a little bit of a reflection together. So I'm really glad to be on the phone with you. Um, and Estefania, one of the things you asked me about in Miami that I also just want to communicate with listeners about is like, hey, what's going on with season two? <laughs> um, and so I want to share with folks that we're currently working really hard alongside our incoming advisory board members, which is going to be the first time our advisory board for this project is actually formalized. I'm so grateful and excited. And we're working on bringing you a brilliant second season of the show. And we have been immersed on a self-guided retreat to clarify our political and healing lineages and commitments. We've been diving deeper into clarifying what are the very strategic contributions that something like this podcast can be contributing to shaping movement culture in this country um, and worldwide? And we've also been engaging in like listening and accountability check-ins with leaders we admire and people who've been advising us over the last year, guests that have been on the show, to continue to really make our presence in the ecosystem of spirit and struggle more clear and uh, more appropriate and more honed. And we've also been reading listener feedback and reviews and answers to our survey from season one to help inform that too. So thank you for being patient with us as we're a little more externally quiet, but internally uh, very engaged in the work. And the other thing I wanna just quickly shout out is 
the access team, which is like a total freaking miracle that is coming together in such a beautiful way. We put out an invitation about a month ago for people to join us as volunteers to really work on supporting the commitment of disability justice in this project. And 70 people signed up from all over the world. I could not believe it. I thought maybe we'd get like 10 and that would be good. We got 70 people. And uh, folks who signed up to help us really think about all of the different ways in which disability justice needs to be technically part of the way we produce this show. And so the biggest thing we're working on right now is transcribing 81 plus episodes, uh, which is a lot of content to go through, but with this incredible team that's coming together led by Erica and JD and so many others, we are already almost 25% done with our first drafts of those transcripts. So a huge thank you to our new access team volunteers and also a huge thank you to our listener base that has been so patient um, as we have not had transcripts available and are now really building up our capacity and our muscle to, to make that a new reality of having timely transcripts uh, with our show. So we've got Estefania here on the phone. We're both home. We had a little bit of sleep. It's been two days. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit from you, Estefania, what has been sitting with you after this experience of the live show together? In terms of the topic itself, um, the podcast was on food justice and healing. You know, there's so much to unpack there. There's so much history about um, the food system that impacts us still today. And so part of what I shared on the show was how my personal healing process has really um, shaped the way that I'm seeing this fight and uh, just how... um, for me, it feels like it needs to be that uh, the food sovereignty movement is a healing movement. And I, I see that with more clarity now. So I'm just really glad and honored that we had an opportunity to start these conversations for the listeners of the podcast. Mm. Yeah, I want to thank you for the ways that you really brought um, your own story so vulnerably and authentically into the conversation about food sovereignty, which could be, could have been like a political education conversation, you know, um, about that issue. But one thing that people didn't necessarily get to witness all of is the process that you actually went through in deciding to share uh, the aspect of your story about being a survivor. And when me, you, and Miles were sitting around the table preparing and sort of mapping our stories and thinking about what we wanted to share, um, as so many organizers are doing at any given moment in the world, really doing deep reflection and practicing story, um, yeah, how does it feel now having shared so publicly about being a survivor? Yes, um, I did that. I I share that out loud. Um, (laughs) podcast so um I was looking forward to in this post uh podcast um reflection that uh to share with y'all that um telling telling the story of how I came out as a survivor was was a very powerful experience for me um and getting the platform to do it in this in this way with this frame around healing um and around the work that we're doing with uprooted and rising and um yeah it really just pushed me to see 
um, and feel uh, like the deep connection of what's at the core of this fight for food sovereignty and, and my experience as a survivor and seeing that um, both of these things really feel like it's a battle for our reality um, and who would believe whose knowledge we value, what do we acknowledge, what history we're acknowledging. Um, and um, yeah, I, I really uh, hope that during the podcasts, we were able to acknowledge um, the harms that the food system has done to us. And I think what I'm um, excited to lift up is how, and the connection that I see with being a survivor is um, to how we need to honor the resiliency of the survivors of our food system. And, you know, despite like centuries of terrorism from big food corporations and their predecessors, you know, we're all still here. Um, and despite all efforts to like poison us in our environment, we're still here. And similarly as a survivor, I think, um, you know, despite not being believed, despite having been bullied for, for my trauma, for sharing, you know, these stories out loud, um, I'm still here and I'm still fighting for my place in the world. You know? So in general, I think I feel very grateful to you, Kate, um, for uh, holding the process and giving us both me and Miles direction. Um, and I'm very grateful for this process of building independent media. Um, that is just so cool. And I'm so glad that we can have control over the conversations that we're wanting to have in mediums like these and other cool podcasts out there and other, other ways in which people are really being inventive and innovative um, and taking back Mm. Our media and other things mm. so um this was also a really powerful experience for me to do this with miles i think it was a awesome opportunity to collaborate with him in that way um and the last thing i'll, I'll say is that uh my learning is how doing this podcast really prompted a lot of deep reflection for me and it really helped me hone in on the things that are really true and really vivid for me in this movement mm. thank you yeah I, lo I love how you say it helped you hone in on what's true because I think that has been a, 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 a through line of experiences of guests who come on is just like and for me for sure thinking about what you want to share and being in enough reflection to sort of permanently put it out there mm -hmm. um, is is really a, a leadership development and like a heart development practice um, for us that is very much related to the work we're doing in the world. Um, so the other thing I want to name is, you know, this is the first time we've ever done a show that was in like a funder environment. Um, and so since we were at a funder conference, we got to talk with people a bit and really think more about the ways that funders can support healing work in movements. Mm. And I was so impressed by the amount of people who were actually really interested and ready for that conversation or even had examples of how they're already doing it because I feel like in general, like the, the world of funding for social justice work is really mostly not there yet, right? That there is much more interest building in, in realizing that we need to put more supports to sustain our leaders and more directly deal with trauma if we expect people to be able to lead incredible strategies to change our world. Um, but it's still something that's really, really, really hard to get supported to have the time and space and materials to do. 
Um, and so there were a couple ideas we came up with at a dinner that I just want to share to anyone who's listening. If you might be listening and you're a funder or you're thinking about asking for support from a funder for this work. So one way, of course, is to give freely to this project, um, to give general operating support so that the materials or uh, when we have to hire people to do certain things, even though we run mostly on volunteers, um, that uh, the projects that need it you know, have resources. And that includes giving to the people that you hear on this podcast, like Uprooted and Rising, like so many of our guests who have been doing this work for decades and some have never gotten paid for it. Um, give to these projects that are leading on this. Another way is to sponsor a series um, on the show. So one really cool partnership that we did with Groundswell Action Fund in the fall is we produced a, a, a series called Surviving Elections. And Groundswell Action sponsored that series. And so instead of putting marketing dollars toward some random uh, radio station or paying for Facebook ads and giving all their money to Facebook, they decided to basically use their marketing dollars to fund this project. And in turn, we did small features on their grantees where instead of hearing a commercial on the podcast to so go and buy something uh, not related to us at all, instead you would hear a commercial about one of Groundswell Action Fund's amazing grantees of like women of color leading badass uh, civic engagement work in the South um, around the midterm elections. And so those are the kind of advertising that I want to hear. I want to hear stories of people doing incredible work. And it was also a really sweet thing for those leaders to be told by um, one of their funders, like, hey, we want you to do like a little spot on this show that a lot of your you know, organizing and cultural work friends listen to and will like be so excited to hear you and give you props and help you make new relationships and find new leaders and all that stuff by sort of broadcasting out to the community. So that's been really fun and we do have some new series coming up that we're looking for partners on like one with movement elders talking to one another one where we're unearthing some of the core movement conflicts that keep coming up as obstacles in our work another series on decolonizing money and fundraising which is going to be really interesting um, so we're looking for partners on those and then the last thing I want to name is that some foundations also are starting to think about putting aside money to budget to create healing space and ongoing healing support for your grantees. So instead of expecting grantees to be able to find money in very scarce budgets, um, to be able to pay for those things, even though we encourage organizations of all size to really prioritize that, as foundations thinking about, you know, hey, when you get... Uh, financial support from us, you also get access to a politicized therapy or a, a retreat or a coach or something like that. And so um, here at the podcast, we've been partnering with a foundation that's thinking about how to provide more of that ongoing support. So if you have other ideas or examples of how uh, folks are moving money and resources into supporting healing justice work as a central part of social change and organizing work. Share them with us. Hit us up on social media. Email us. Use the inbox that's on our website at healingjustice.org. And we'd love to keep learning about how we can facilitate these partnerships. Yes. Um, so you can keep in touch with the Healing Justice Podcast on social media at Healing Justice on Instagram and Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook. And 
uh, on Twitter, you can follow at HJ Podcast. And of course, you can follow our work with Uprooted and Rising um, at uprootedandrising.org and see everything that we're doing. Check it out. So, y'all, this podcast has been a great personal resource for me. Um, and so I would definitely encourage anyone um, to consider supporting this work and becoming a sustaining donor to this project. Um, and you can go to patreon.com slash healing justice for that. Thank you. Yeah, I am so happy, Estefania, how much you have used the podcast and the practices here. It's like my greatest dream that it would support organizers who are doing such amazing work like you are. Um, and we do have a lot of new rewards and ways to be in more community coming soon to our Patreon. So please do check it out and join us at patreon.com slash healing justice. A big thank you to Guido Giorgenti for audio editing and Zach Meyer for the sound design and music on this episode. We're so glad that you are with us, listener, and thank you for all that you're doing to bring more love and justice into this world. You'll hear from us soon with season two, but for now, we're going to end this podcast episode with a song from the live show from the incredible Inez Barlatier. This song is called Mama is a Rock, and it's from her new EP, Moon Moon, which this song is based on the strength of her mother and can also be interpreted as a reflection on the provisions of the earth. You can find a link to that EP in the show notes to learn more about Inez. And here she is with Mama is a Rock. to provide it, yes, if
Mama is a rolling, mama is a rolling. 